here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hegel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! This is Philosophy for Theologians, episode number two. The latest program from Reformed Forum at reformedforum.org. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today a whole host of characters. Starting from left to right, we have Nathan Shannon, who is a Ph.D. student at the Free University of Amsterdam. How are you doing, Nate? Not too bad, not too bad. What's up, Camden? Nathan Shannon. Oh, I like that. I like that. Give next me goosebumps. To, uh, next to Nate, we have none other than... Jared Oliphant. Jared Oliphant, who's director of admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. It's great to have you over, Jared. Great to be here. And finally, last but not least, the very own, the one, the only philosophator, Jonathan Brack. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a Jonathan Brack. (laughs) Jonathan Brack. (laughs) Brack. Jonathan Brack, who is. An MDiv student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for having us over, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you guys are here. We are broadcasting live on Ustream.tv from Studio B here in Glenside, Pennsylvania. And this is our first actual real episode of Philosophy for Theologians. Episode one was a collection of uh, clips from a previous discussion that we had. But today we're actually going to dive into a topic and try to address it and try to give you a foundation in the philosopher Rene Descartes. Uh, to just start things off here, let me read a little bit from uh, a, a piece on Rene Descartes. We have his dates, uh, 1596 to 1650. Descartes was a French philosopher, a mathematician, and physicist, and he has been dubbed the father of modern philosophy. Uh, the father of modern philosophy, and much of subsequent Western philosophy is a response to his writings. Many of his works actually are still studied today. In particular, his meditations on first philosophy. Descartes is also known for his contribution to mathematics, and he even is credited as the father of analytical geometry. Descartes was also one of the key figures in the scientific revolution, and his famous phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, is perhaps the most well-known philosophical phrase out there. His phrase encapsulates Descartes' attempt to find something that he could not doubt, an indubitable, and for him that thing was the very fact that he was thinking. That is Rene Descartes, and I'm going to kick things over to... Jonathan! <laughs> to talk about Descartes and start today's discussion, Jonathan. Yeah, well, I am by no means an expert in Rene Descartes, but um, I think for this program we can, we'll just give a, a simple overview of how he gets to Cogito Ergo Sum, and then um, we'll talk about some of the ramifications that has, uh, some of the critiques that are offered against Rene Descartes. Um, but first off, he, he, he's, an, he's wanting to do a, a, a fresh start in philosophy, and he's not wanting to do the same method that medievals and scholastics did when they did their philosophy. And so what he's trying to do is, is basically find the indubitable. Um, he's wanting to find um, sort of a foundational premise that you know um, with certainty. That, indubitably. <laughs> yes, that's right. Indubitably. Indubitably. <laughs> and um, so he begins to do that by uh, this method of deduction where he begins to doubt everything before him. So he begins to doubt um, 
his senses, you know, what he perceives in the world. And one of the examples of, of how he's able to doubt that is he, he uh, argues that we could be dreaming. Yeah. So every single time that we see, um, you know, a couch right in front of us in our waking state, mm-hmm. um, it could be the fact that I'm actually dreaming that couch. And so that's one example. And so you can't know for absolute certainty whether or not you are awake or asleep because there's been plenty of times when you're asleep that you really do think that you're awake. Oh, yeah. And a popular expression of this is the movie The Matrix. Right. You want to get your yeah. head around a little bit of what Descartes was worried about, the grand deceiver. It, uh, it's portrayed in The Matrix. The people are in The Matrix, but re- they don't know that really they're in some you know, pod somewhere uh, having their brain stimulated. Right. Another good movie about that is actually uh, um, Waking Life. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, rotoscoped. Yeah, and it's an, it's got the kid from uh, from uh, oh darn it, what's that movie? Days and Confused. Yeah, Days and yeah. yeah, yeah, the kid from Days and Confused, and he plays a character who is in a dream the entire time, but he's aware that he's in, and it goes in and out, and you don't know what's reality and what's not. Yeah, and one of the bizarre things that that actually um, connects to Rene Descartes is in that movie, he's talking to a lot of different characters who are presenting different philosophies. And one of the strange things that he thinks is, I'm dreaming, but I have no idea where these ideas are coming from hmm. because they're not in my head, but people are talking to me about these different philosophies. And so anyways, uh, similar to, you know, when we're dreaming and we, we assume that we're awake um, is, is the corollary to our actual waking state. How do we know that our actual waking state is not just another level of dreaming? And so... That's uh, so he can get past, um, you know, our senses, the extended world. He can doubt that away. Um, and then the second line of, of doubting would be, and, real, and of course, this is real basic, but um, logic and math. Um, for instance, how do you know or how can you doubt two plus two equals four? How are you able to actually begin to doubt that? Well, the way in which Rene Descartes argues how you can doubt that is through what has been commonly called the evil genie or the omniscient demon. Um, it can be God, who is actually not good, but actually a manipulator and a deceiver that can trick you into thinking that every single time you see two and two, and when it actually equals five, you think four automatically. And you can't help but think that. And because God being all-powerful can, can force you to think that way. And so... But at the end of the day, even after you can doubt away logic and math, what you can't doubt is the simple fact that I am doubting. Dubito ergo sum, or, or that the simple fact that since you're doubting, you are thinking. And so uh, I can't doubt that I'm at least thinking. Hence, I think, therefore I am. And so that's where um, Rene Descartes... Um, that's the foundation for which Rene Descartes uh, builds the rest of his philosophy on is the cogito ergo sum. Um, does anybody have any comments to that? Did anyone want to add to that? Just a quick, you, you mentioned that uh, that differs somewhat from, uh, I guess, the scholastic age. I mean, Descartes is often um, you know, talked about to be the father of modernity. Um, so he started a whole um, transition in philosophy. Uh, 
could could someone characterize, I guess, what was the the process or the um, epistemological method in the scholastic period that that Descartes is kind of branching off from? Well, I, I think one way to look at it is Descartes. Um, he writes his own treatise on philosophy, and my understanding is you you start to see that for the first time in the modern era. Mm-hmm. So previously, a, a philosopher instead of um, writing his own method for basically wiping the the whole thinking process clean and starting over, he would write a commentary. Or you would accept, uh, you know, you would start off, you know, sort of a thus it is written in the history of philosophy and comment on that Hmm. and begin that way. And Descartes um, found that pretty unsatisfactory. He said, for one thing, you don't learn anything new doing that. Um, And basically you're you're just kind of uh, woven together out of quotes. Hmm. And so... and. Another piece that goes into his his method was um, um, sort of the the Renaissance science view that uh, you could explain the whole world by efficient causality and so that you could explain everything that's observable without any reference to any to God or anything ultimate or anything mysterious that everything could, could sort of be reduced to mathematics. And so Descartes. Takes the he what he wants to do is take the method of mathematics the in, the indubitable sort of the intuitive beginnings of mathematics and the perfect deduction of increasing knowledge by a mathematical method and explain the whole world that way yeah. right and he doesn't get that far but he says I'm going to start this I'm going to start this great project for everybody and I'm going to find the indubitable now it sounds weird all the thing the 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 method of doubt and no, I, nobody really thinks Descartes doubted everything right. Just explaining how you know if anything has ever once been wrong, or 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 anything has ever once been doubted, or if there's any way that this or that could be doubted, then we have to throw it out. Mm Because we have to start with what is absolutely rock solid, which is indubitably, indubitably, indubitably. That's right. We even have an indubitable theme. (laughs) So you cannot doubt that that is playing. Right. And he said he says something interesting. He says that um you can. You can even doubt that God exists, and he says plenty of people do it. Mm-hmm. But you can't doubt that you exist. He he said something like, "I doubt that I exist." It's just an incoherent statement. So he found that um, no matter what's happening, if you're being fooled by the demon, you know theoretically, it's you who are being fooled, and it's your thought process. You, no matter what you do, you you know that you are thinking, so mm-hmm. you are a thinking thing. Yeah. It's interesting that earlier you mentioned his method and um and that how you wanted to basically um explain the whole world. And that that is interesting because his he eventually wanted to write a piece called Le Monde, the world, right? Just the world. Right. 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 <laughs> and I think it would be awesome to write that book one day. Just <laughs> this is the world. Yeah. Right I here. actually met a guy on a plane one time who who was uh, scratching his chin contemplatively and then returning to his notebook and scribble, scribble. And finally I said, okay, what are you, what are you writing? He said, I'm writing a book about everything. Mm, yeah. I bet that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just really a book Those- about nothing. Warning. <laughs> Warning. Epistemic failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we, and we should also mention that the primary uh, text that we're looking at is Meditations on First Philosophy. Um, that Rene Descartes wrote. I haven't looked at much else beyond this. Um, I think Nate, you have, but that's kind yeah, of where a bit, we're a bit. Yeah, where we're focusing on a little. Yeah, bit. The, well, the three. I think the three major texts are the Rules for the Direction of the Mind, which was published. Uh, I like to say posthumanly, 
but I think it was actually written earlier. And then the discourse came, and then and then the um, the meditations. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I, you talked about so the method of doubt is actually the first part of his method that I understand. The next part he sort of left for posterity. Um, as far as I understand, he splits his method um, into two parts. One is analyze, which means take everything apart, reduce everything down to intuitive truths, things that can't be doubted, right? And then slowly build everything back up. And what he, what he says is that you may come back to the same knowledge you had before, but you've, you've built it up on indubitable grounds. Mm-hmm. Right. In, indubitable Oh, you wanted? I thought I was getting annoyed. Uh, I think Camden's right. (laughs) And this is, and this is called. uh, In I, I don't know where the the term was phrased, but that's basically uh, classical foundationalism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's. Yeah, I I think the two pillars of what is now called modern or classical foundationalism are are Descartes and 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 Locke. Yeah, yeah. Now uh, after. He, you know, uh, comes to the conclusion that I think, therefore, I am. He realizes that that in and of itself is is nothing as far as the world goes. Um, I have to still be able to say something about extended reality. <clears throat> have to be able to um, even do syllogisms in the first place. Right. The thinking thing, which is proven, he will say, uh, doesn't even have a body yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting um, because that goes into... That also goes into this body-soul distinction. The mind-body problem. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, but in order to build back up, um, uh, he eventually gets to a realization that he actually ha- he needs God mm-hmm. in order to be able to explain the world. And so, um, which is interesting because it's like you just got rid of God, right? You doubted him away, and then now that you have the indubitable yourself now you actually need him for anything else in the rest of the world um and so and what he did what he employs is the uh his version of the ontological right yeah just yeah. A, a re-articulation of anselm kind of i think there are there are some important differences but on first read it seems that way and i was reading some of the responses uh some of his critics gassendi right. and another and, and they uh-huh. sort of take it as the anselmian Mm-hmm. Um, that then which uh, nothing greater can be and then yeah. so that it has to have existence or something greater and that's how Kant took it as well when he critiqued it oh okay okay yeah. um, but the the way I saw it if if, if we're going to do that the way the way I saw it the way I understood um, Descartes when I read it was that um, the knowledge of God for Descartes is innate right and his mm-hmm. method is to reduce things to things to uh, to indubitables Right. The things which are innate and things which you can't. And so his idea of God is irreducible, right? He's simple substances don't don't break apart like an empiricist would say, well, I don't know, you know, we, we see the color, we see the shape and all these things, but how do we put these things together? How do we get substance? He said, no, you, you never experience those things separately. You experience the simple substances altogether. And, and so that they're irreducible. Right. And so I understood his argument. This way, that the idea of God um, with uh, perfect existence is irreducible. In other words, if you take that out, it's no longer God. Right. Um, which is different than trying to sneak existence, perfect existence in as a predicate. Okay. You Can you explain mean? the difference? Well, um, 
Yes, because he, I, I think just the idea is that, um, first of all, it's, it's an intuitive idea. Okay. Um, God is, I, I just know him to be that way, which is the interesting thing, because is he trying to prove that God exists, or is he trying to establish certainty in belief in God, or certainty hmm. in, in the knowledge of God? And I, I think it's the latter, which sort of changes it slightly. Okay. Um, because he's not trying to provide grounds on which God actually exists or try to prove that God exists. He's trying to show that it is an indubitable fact that God is this way. Okay. Um, it's such a string read because I, I never read it like that. I always read it as sort of, it is an innate idea, but since the innate idea is God, uh, it automatically demands um, existence in a full-orbed way. Right, the omniscience, the omnipresence, yeah, uh, you know, actual extension. And so, that's yeah, the what... difference is the difference is is subtle, I think. But okay, I, my, I the best word I can think of is just to say that it, you know, God as per, as perfectly existent is irreducible. You know, may, maybe he maybe he only exists in my mind. Descartes would say that there's no such thing. Um, God, he would say, how do I understand God? And he lists, well, he's omniscient, he's the perfect thing. And he has perfect existence. It's just part of the package deal. In other words, um, I think, therefore, I am. I'm a thinking thing. What is a thinking thing? He says, well, a doubting thing, a worrying thing. Right. A, all, a willing thing. A willing thing. And those irreducible. You can't have a thinking thing which doesn't will, you know, will or worry or predict. Or, you know, those are all it's kind of a package deal. Mm-hmm. And I think this approach, that's, that's also his approach with God. He's just irreducibly perfectly existent okay and that perfectly existence demands uh attributes such as benevolence right and so that's where he's going to say it it would be because god is demanded and uh, part of that you know god as a definition also demands benevolence then we can we can know for a fact that our logic does work because a good god would never you know put us off track Right, as and, far as you know, basic concepts like logic and math. That's that's why it brings up God to to in order to to sort of um, have something to volley the reliability of the senses and everything else off of. And I think it's interesting because if if he's trying to say if he's trying to do the Anselmian method by mm-hmm. at, you know saying it's a you have to have the predicate of perfect existence because otherwise something would be greater, um, then you can say, well. You're trying to prove an idea which you already have. See, Descartes says, okay, what's my idea of God? Now, how do I prove that? Which is mm-hmm. obviously, you, you know, that's just assuming what you want to prove. Um, but he's proving his, the idea, he's proving um, his certainty in God from the idea of God. Yeah. Um, in, that way he can already have God. It's, it, it's a little different. And that way he can make sort of a distinction between the order of thinking and the order of being. Um, so it makes, it makes a Vantillian critique a little more difficult. Hmm. It's, it's, it doesn't come so easily. I mean, it, it's, it's there in all its color, but I, you know, we want to say, oh, well, he brought in God later, but he has a psychological starting point. I know I'm thinking and I know I can get, doubt God exists, but I can't doubt that I'm doubting God exists. I can't doubt that I'm doubting. Mm-hmm. I must be a doubting thing. Right. And it, the, the form of it too is, uh, narratival i mean it's he's uh-huh. kind of telling the story of his whole process of going through this uh you know epistemic downing process 
Um, and so it is systematic in one sense, but in another sense, like I said, it, it's narratival. And so you, you're kind of struggling with him and saying, okay, well, I, you know, I could be dreaming about the room that I'm in. You know, I, I see this uh, piece yeah. of wax and it's changing shape. And so what do I know about it? And, um, you know, all these kinds of deceptions going on. Um, and, you know, all that is to say that uh, it, it, it's an interesting narratival read and not so much like, a oh, well, this is definitely true. And so then I conclude this and then I right, conclude that. Right, right. Um, so it, it's a combination of both, I think, yeah. just in terms of form. Yeah, it does make for a great read. I sort of wish you were a 20th century thinker because I'd, I'd love to see him in a Parisian cafe with a cigarette just talking through his meditations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have audio of the cafe that Camden just played. <laughs> his repertoire is limited, but... Right, right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's... it's um, well, That's right. Uh, it's very me, conversational. Go ahead. Let me bring up Kant's objection. Kant's objection is basically um, the difference between something that exists and ascribing to it predicates. Um, basically, it comes out of the, a god that um, exists has the properties of omniscience, um, omnipresent, omnipotent. Also, a god that does not exist is what he'd say. Also, has these properties. Right. And so mm-hmm. that's his. That's Kant's critique. Is that you're all you're talking about is what God would have, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so finding out whether He exists or not doesn't depend on the definition, right? Yeah. So that's and I, and I that's Contra directed Anselm. at yeah that's directed at Anselm right. and I, I believe I think he's also trying to get at Rene Descartes. But if what you're saying about Rene is true, you you might be saying Rene's arguing something a little bit different that Kant might miss right there. I I would think. From my understanding, I would think he would just say, well, there's no such thing as a God that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Descartes would say that, you mean? Yeah, that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. And do you yeah. think Kant would say, well, that's that's the dogmatic slumber I'm trying to wake you, know, yeah. wake you from? Yeah, you know, Hume comes along and it's almost like he's more of a consistent uh, Cartesian than Descartes would be because he's he literally doubts every I mean skepticism yeah Hume's the real more consistent yeah yeah dubist yeah and so there, oh. there's a progression there and so you you do see the uh, the modernist movement it's like Descartes is kind of starting the conversation now I'm starting postmodernist calling everything a conversation but um, you know starting a whole philosophical framework and then you know Hume comes along and, and takes it to the extreme and then Kant comes along and recognizes Hume's insights but then um, takes it in another direction <laughs> And maybe we can speak to this because I know that one of Hume's critique is, um, and some people think he misses, Hume misses Descartes because Descartes does talk about the fact that he doesn't know if he has a body yet. You know, he's not saying that when he says, I think, therefore I am. But what uh, Hume basically says is all Rene Descartes has shown is that thinking is going on. And for you to say, I think, is an assumption that you you have to doubt a ways too because it, how do you know that it is you thinking? It's right. A, How do you know that thinking needs a subject? Right. That's right. I think I think Descartes admits that he made that makes that assumption because that, that that that's a create critique that people make. Yeah. Right. Now, I've heard that critique uh, through my education, but I don't really. I've never really gotten into the depths of how that actually crumbles everything else. I just know that's like, is that a correction that needs to be made, or how does that actually get at the fact that that kind of at the most foundational level blows everything up for for Rene Descartes. Warning, warning. (laughs) 
Epistemic failure. Is that my epistemic failure? No, I, I, Descartes. I think I think in this case it's Descartes' epistemic failure. I, I, I in the limited secondary literature I've read, it's it's actually kind of a standing critique that um, yeah, you you can't assume that thinking uh, needs a subject. Yeah, but yeah. Well, and that, I don't know this. This is probably a rabbit trail, but uh, at some point it would be maybe not even on this segment, but it'd be fun to discuss just the mind body problem um, and the theological implications that are involved with that. Um, and kind of a biblical theology of, of mind body issues. Um, we, we may right. not want to do that now, but I think it is involved with the whole discussion here. Yeah. You definitely, Descartes get into dualism. Yeah. Right. right. And, um, you know, in my reading, I, you know, I think that he brings that up in his uh, passions of the soul and the description of the human body, which are other works by Descartes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, definitely. So it's germane to the discussion. It is. And, and like I said, we don't have to get into it right now. But one, one good resource for that um, is there's a book called uh, Blame It on the Brain by Ed Welch. And it's it's meant for like a popular level. And um, his whole, I guess, first half or maybe first quarter of the book is dealing with the whole mind-body problem and dualism. He traces a little bit of history and gives kind of a biblical foundation to the whole problem. So if mm-hmm. you're looking to get more into that specifically, it's a good resource. Right. So where do we go from here? I mean, um, what are some uh, other perspectives on Descartes? Um, I was going to say, you know, the basic biblical critique, we could, you know, do that internally and externally. Um, you're making the Van Tillian well, critique I'll, a little I'll, bit more let difficult. Me, let, me, let me make one more point about the mind-body problems. There's go something ahead. interesting that, you know, uh, Descartes is called the, the father in modern philosophy, which... Um, there's some surprises if, if, if that's how you get to know him first. And one of those things is a mind-body problem because <clears throat> he's working in a context where a lot of people are starting to think about explaining the whole universe, right, mathematically, right. efficient causality and everything. And, and you don't need to make any reference to anything that isn't, right, observable or, or mm-hmm. cause-effect. Yeah, of, empirical. Right. And uh, so Descartes does something very bold by affirming a spiritual aspect to the person and even anchors the personality in that spiritual aspect in the thinking part. You know, he's, he talks about mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a sense you have the father of modern philosophy trying to defend, uh, the spiritual side of the person. Right. A biblical doctrine, right? It, duality. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's, in, and he's, he's stuck with the problem. In fact, it's his, his predecessors who, start to take the problem seriously and try to figure out how it is that the mind and the body actually interact, um, how the mind can make the body do something or how the mind knows, uh, you know, receives the deliverances of the senses and all that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, that, that came up, like when we're talking about Hume and Kant and other critiques of Descartes, um, it occurred to me that it might be pertinent that Descartes is a Roman Catholic. Um, and considers himself um, a philosopher working with that background there, right? Rome stands, yeah. and I'm in my laboratory trying to work out certainty and all those things. And we're, we're talking, uh, before we started recording, that Descartes does seem to be sensitive to the province of human thinking, and he understands that um, there are uh, truths with, which, which belong to the church, which are not accessible and... Um, uh, to thinking alone and things like that. And so um, when we critique the way he thinks about God, when a Protestant does, mm-hmm. 
uh, he does so sort of on different grounds because I feel like Descartes has recourse to church authority. Uh, he endangers it, of course, if you know the way he the way he uh, operates, the way he talks about God shows that um, if you if you if you apply his thinking across the board, um, the the foundations of uh, of Roman Catholic truth are implicitly endangered in the way he thinks. But at the same time, he can always have recourse to the authority of the church. To the authority of the church. Do you as, think that's why he does a sort of natural theology? At the end of the day, is because because of the Roman Catholic influence. Definitely, yeah. definitely, and I think that's why he's so comfortable saying, um, "What is my idea of God?" And right. he just comes out with a, a by intuition, he says, a very rich uh, idea of God with all you know many attributes and you know. Yeah, and in his uh, in his greetings, um, this is again in the meditations is kind of a, a preface to a preface. But he says, and in Romans chapter one, um, a passage that we've quoted quite a bit, um, he says, "It is said that they are without excuse." And again in the same passage, it appears we are being warned with the words, "What is known of God is manifest in them." That everything that can be known about God can be shown by reasons drawn exclusively from our own mind. Uh, interesting interpretation. <clears throat> yeah. Then he goes on and says, For this reason, I did not think it unbecoming for me to inquire how this may be the case and by what path God may be known more easily and with greater certainty than the things of this world. So in that sense, he's kind of uh, trying to justify the whole project in general um, of inquiring into this. And I think he's kind of setting himself up for, look, you, you may, you know, at first glance kind of um, be opposed to questioning God's existence and those kinds of things. But I think he's kind of prefacing it saying, you know, I know where I'm going with this and it's it's a just cause, I guess you could say. Right. Um, given right. the context of the church and what he's trying to do really apologetically. Hmm. So what would be the difference Maybe I could throw this out between um, our idea, reformed idea of uh, knowledge of God, you know, after Romans one fashion, and Descartes' idea of the innate knowledge of God. Um, Descartes does not want to say that uh, a newborn baby has a full knowledge of of a God with of perfect being and omniscient. And all those sorts of things, just lacking the vocabulary to articulate it. Right. But what he wants to say is that we sort of have a, a potential or virtual idea of God, um, and he proceeds to deduce from there, um, I guess, a, a richer theological truth. So, what you know is that consistent with Romans one? The first thing that comes to mind is I don't see Rene Descartes having, as far as Romans 1 goes, an understanding of, yeah, it's true that the knowledge of God has been made plain, right? Mm-hmm. But it's been also suppressed. Right. And so it's like, how is, how is like this knowledge that is made, made plain suppressed? Yeah. And, and also when we read Locke, uh, you know, and then we read Calvin, we see the differences on the, these ideas of innate ideas, this conception that, yeah. For Calvin, uh, which is the tradition that we follow, um, knowledge of God and knowledge of self are always coincident. Right. You can never never have any time in which you have knowledge of yourself prior to knowledge of God because you being a, crea- or, uh, being a creature, uh, being made in God's image and being dependent upon God for your very um, epistemology, 
Yeah. Uh, to to say anything else would be warning, warning, <laughs> epistemic, epistemic failure. failure. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's book one, chapter one of Institutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. There's. Did you want to say something? No, I was just thinking that Descartes seems to come really close to that, and he says, "Well, I know myself, right? But to to, to even say that I know myself fully as having a body, and even start to think about the external world, I need to know God too." Right. right. So, so then let me ask you, what's the difference between what Descartes saying and then Kant's critique, which is a transcendental approach, uh, right. and then the Vantillian approach is uh, <laughs> a better form uh, uh, of the transcendental approach? I think this quote that I have right here from Defense of the Faith is, begins to chip away at it. Um, let me let me quote it. It's from actually Dr. Oliphant's footnote in Defense of the Faith on page 176. Um he notes, uh, innate knowledge, whether Cartesian or Platonic, for that matter, assumes that such knowledge is simply ours. Um, and what he's talking about is, uh, you know, cogito ergo sum, um, or an innate knowledge of God. Um, it's a bare fact, or it's knowledge outside of, of God. Well, that it assumes that knowledge is simply ours. Simply ours. And it assumes an autonomy that any notion of knowledge as given could not, uh, could not assume because given uh, entails a giver. And so in other words, that critique, I believe, is is basically noting the fact that even if you come down to the adubital, can cogito ergo sum, that required a method of deduction, and you were right. you, you have a conclusion. Right. That conclusion never comes. Ultimately, any knowledge, godliness, or wisdom never comes from you yourself. You don't, you don't create it. And so it's given to you. That's why we take a transcendental approach. Right. Because we're subjects, uh, we think on a created level, de- fully and wholly dependent upon God and his knowledge. We have to uh, reason about these things uh, transcendentally. As you know, God's a synthetic a priori in a sense. We don't, right. we don't, we don't derive uh, an entire argument that, that arrives at God as a conclusion. But rather, he's the necessary preconditions for the very fact that we can argue. Right. So to maybe improve Descartes, um, we might say, you know, I think therefore I am, but the very necessary preconditions of my thought is, well, if we to be bald about it, is the triune God of the Bible. Well, it seems like in his meditations, as soon as he begins to doubt away logic because of an, an evil, omniscient demon, it seems like right then and there he should have checked himself with what he does later on in the third meditation with, wait a second. Before he wrecked himself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is, you know, omniscient demon. Does that make sense? Right. Um, And, you know, not in like a rationalistic way, but begin to actually flesh out the fact that, wait, I can't doubt this way. In fact, before I even get to cogito ergo sum, I have to have, um, I think because it's, you know, that thought's been given, it's been given to me from a creator. Because I don't just create my own thoughts, you know, because I'm not a creator. Um, it's a given knowledge, any innate knowledge. Yeah. So that's, what do you think about that, Nate? You're looking at me like, hmm. I'm trying to work out yeah. in my mind. I like, I like well, you're the- obviously being the most charitable and the most challenging, which is a, a good thing uh, to make, you know, to keep us in check from just a simple, quick conclusion to this discussion. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I want to be easy on any... Any guy who's stuck with the first name Renee, 
<laughs> I, I feel like Reenie. Reenie. Yeah, that's how I went in high school. I just feel like him as Reenie. Yeah, he Hello, my out. name is Renee. We're <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So please hang up and try and name again. You know those those French. They're also you know Michael is Michelle. So you got to give him a little bit of credit. Yeah, I, I like the uh, the elephant overtone. Now I don't want to wholesale agree with everything elephant says. No, I'm Scott, just kidding. Which one? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just a joke. Um, <laughs> it's father. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he says that um, uh, the Descartes method assumes that such knowledge is just ours, I think he said. And I, I think that that's, that's kind of a methodological point that Descartes assumes that knowledge of God is just ours. And there's a Romans 1 kind of perspective on that where that knowledge of god that is just ours needs to be seriously corrected seriously right. redeemed and seriously raised again but there is no um, knowledge that's just ours that's yeah, the point it's objective well, yeah that's what he's saying yeah i'm sorry oh that's not what yeah well, I mean, that's what renee's not maybe saying. not just that's I'm, what i mean yeah i don't know it's Descartes an, is not yeah. that's that's not a, a thing that we can acknowledge exists well except for in the sense that can you escape knowledge of god no no you can't right so, is there innate knowledge of God? I think, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, in the sense, like Calvin, Calvin would say, as we say, you can't know yourself without knowing God. So, you're always yes. handling the knowledge of God. Exactly. Right? So, what's the difference? Well, the difference is exactly. yeah, that we, just, we assume that the knowledge is just ours, and, um, which is not the case. Our approach is you have to take um, not just the facts that Scripture gives you, but you have to take Scripture's point of view, right? That's exa- um, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, right. Scripture yeah. Um, ass- assumes Scripture gives no argument for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, yeah. I mean, you, depending on how you define that. Well, I mean, it doesn't. Uh, how do you, how do you mean? How do you, I, I mean, um, it, yeah, depends on how you fi- define argument. I, I mean, I think it gives reasons, obviously, and, and things right. like that. It doesn't give it an argument that depends on something else. I think that's right. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, Scripture begins and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, mm-hmm. and assumes from that point on that God exists. The perspective, the point of view of of Scripture assumes that God exists. Right. It doesn't um, make a proof that's, that's right. dependent on something outside of itself. Right. That's it doesn't right. say God has to exist because... Um, and so if we take that point of view, then we confess that, and we begin with with, with that, and not with um, deriving this knowledge, which is just ours. Right. Um, yeah, and I don't know really what that means, knowledge that, that's just yours. Well, that was your father's quote. So. I think it's a brute fact, <laughs> or a, not a brute fact, but yeah. it's a it's a fact that you have been the only interpreter of. Uh huh. Yeah, I I think it's taking difference. I I think maybe you know we take the perspective of of scripture, or we take our perspective. And one of the one of the most important things that the difference is that appears if we take scripture's standpoint versus Descartes' standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have so many similarities. Well, we always have knowledge of God, and God is obviously this, and if God is, then, um. Uh, you know, one of the one of the first things that pops up is a massive difference between the Bible's view of human reason and Descartes' view of human reason. That's right. Um, can I read something yeah. which I think is great? This, it just explodes. Good sense is, of all things in the world, the most equally distributed. For everybody thinks himself so abundantly provided with it 
that even those most difficult to please in all other matters do not commonly desire more of it than they already possess. And he continues, it is unlikely uh, that this is an error on their part. How about that? It's unlikely that human pride in, in human reason is an error. I love that. It seems rather to be evidence in support of the view that the power of forming a good judgment and of distinguishing the true from the false, which is properly speaking what is called good sense or reason, is by nature equal in all men. And he goes on to say that the problem is not the capacity that we have, but the method that we don't start with indubitables. What's that indubitable? Me. Right, yeah. Autonomous man. <laughs> it's a, I think it's, that's, it's actually great to follow that quote up with what Van Til, which is more of an external critique, um, w- uh, would say to that, which is, this is in uh, Defense of the Faith. Um, well, it's volume two, which is Survey of Christian Epistemology, um, which is my favorite book by Van Til. That's a great one. This is on page 104. He says, To conceive of the individual human consciousness at the ultimate starting point on which conclusions are to be based with respect to universal laws makes man, instead of God, the source of law. On the other hand, to start with a general law such as whatever thinks exists. So in other words, right here, he even assumes Hume's critique, right? Yeah. Whatever thinks exists, right? Um without asking whether such a law existed by itself or is dependent upon God for its existence in the first place, Mm. does not give that originality to God without which no true theism can exist. Preach it. Preach it. And that's why I really do love that book. It's real, (laughs) it's, it's real cutting as, and it's, um, and it seems sort of just like real simple because, you know, he dwells on Descartes for maybe two pages mm-hmm. in this. But he says statements like that. And it's like after I've read some Descartes and, you know, kind of digested it, it's like, wow, that quote really does hit you mm-hmm. with what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. The very right. There, there are some internal problems that, that you can kind of uh, get a wedge into. And one of those is assuming that thinking has a subject. The mind-body problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are problems which evaporate if you begin with um, the perspective that Scripture has. There's no distinction. You know, bi- the Bible speaks about the spirit and the mind and the heart and all these things. And the human person is all one being created to reflect the image of God. So these things aren't in competition. They work together, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. the think- think- thinking needs a subject. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it does. We're thinking subjects, again, is reflecting... Um, god himself right so well uh anything else about Rene Descartes that anybody wants to add i think that's that's pretty good i think that's a yeah that's a <laughs> that's a, that's a, mean, fair enough, basic. That's a nice self-congratulatory uh, wrap up there <laughs> that was excellent <laughs> that's a fair enough critique of his yeah, major points yeah. so. right. and and our goal i think is just uh you know like everything yeah, we else. can't be comprehensive here. right that's exactly it, yeah. it's more just exposure here here's what one philosopher was trying to do here's here's where he is in the history of philosophy and um you know if that's helpful helpful i hope that um you know contributes somewhat to the conversation well, I guess we'll wrap things up here just to let people know uh, what's going on. You can visit Westminster at uh, facebook.com slash Westminster Online and youtube.com slash Westminster Online. There you find all sorts of great stuff. As well, iTunes U. If you visit the iTunes U section, you'll find all sorts of great stuff, including David Pallison's new class, Counseling and Secular Psychology. And visit us online, of course, for all your Reform Forum information, reformforum.com.
Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.